Daily Drive is brought to you by eBay Motors. Auto dealers, are you missing the most engaged buyers because you don't know where to find them? At eBay Motors, you'll find buyers so motivated, they purchase a car or truck once every three minutes. Just call 866-210-5362 and mention code AUTONEWS to get 50% off your first two months. Hi everyone, this is Steve Smith with Automotive News. Welcome to Daily Drive for Thursday, July 8th. Last week, NHTSA unveiled new crash reporting requirements for incidents involving certain driver assist and self-driving technologies. Carla Bello, president and CEO of the Center for Automotive Research, welcomes those new requirements. She says unlike past recall and service campaigns in response to consumer feedback, the announcement of these reporting requirements involving ADAS technology shows NHTSA is taking a more proactive role. She also says the announcement serves as an important catalyst to sparking conversation among all players in the ecosystem, public and private, particularly around standards in the United States. She notes how NHTSA has been largely quiet on ADAS tech for the last several years, which has resulted in the development of different types of technologies that all do different things and perform in different ways. That's only exacerbated by different state-level regulation regarding the use of automated driving technologies. She sees the NHTSA announcement as a pathway to important discussions that now include the federal government that are designed to create standards around automated and connected technologies. Balo also believes that all of this is going to lead to better consumer acceptance of AV and EV tech, and with the scaling of those technologies will come more social equity regarding access to transportation. How and why are consumer acceptance and social equity to transportation so important? And finally, what's she and her team hearing from industry friends and colleagues as they plan next month's management briefing seminars in Traverse City, Michigan? We've reached Center for Automotive Research President and CEO, Carla Bello. Carla, thanks so much for joining me today on Daily Drive. Super excited to have you on the show. How are you? I'm doing great. It was a lovely uh, 4th of July weekend up north here. Well, thank you for taking a few minutes out of your schedule to join us. I know uh, CARS MBS program is just around the corner and things are certainly busy. We'll talk a little bit about what's on tap at this year's MBS a little bit later in the conversation. But let's start with some news that NHTSA made last week relative to new reporting requirements for crashes that involve self-driving technology, driver-assisted technology. What's your view on those new crash reporting requirements? requirements? Well, I, I found it quite interesting and, and quite welcome at the same time. Um, as we know, NHTSA has always been involved for many, many years in checking um, any kind of concerns that are coming from the field, looking at, you know, repeated accidents of special of certain vehicles, looking at, you know, what the consumer is saying, you know, to be ahead of, you know, recall campaigns, service campaigns, etc. So they've always been involved, but in terms of, you know, the, the new technologies, the ADAS technologies, besides putting out for comments several years ago, the, the highly automated vehicle guidelines, they've been relatively silent and just kind of letting the industry lead. And, you know, this has, you know, led the industry to create a number of different systems that are named different things and perform differently. And we're starting to see how some of this is, is now impacting customer and, and customer behavior and customer thoughts. 
Um, that combined with the fact that just so many of the agencies in D.C. are now being re-energized, you know, DOT, DOE, um, DOC, everyone is being re-energized on multiple levels with the with the new administration. And when you put these two things together, the time is right for the federal government to get involved. What we have right now, as you probably know, is this state by statewide policy of different rules, some of them just governor orders, some of them actually laws on the books about how these you know, connected and autonomous vehicles are to be tested and then eventually be licensed. And from an industry standpoint, fundamentally, we can't make a different brain when we cross state lines. I mean, we could, but it would be crazy difficult to do and be very expensive to do. So getting the federal government engaged, working with the industry now to create this these policies and regulations is really, really important. So, you know, this new uh, uh, order or, you know, looking at tracking these accidents is a way to begin uh, to get this information and to begin to amass the data that's going to be needed for those future conversations. When we're talking about discussions and conversations, you're actually quoted in an article in this week's edition of Automotive News relative to this topic. And you're quoted as saying, I'd be surprised if anybody felt like this was in any way intrusion or anti-agnostic to the to what they do now, and but rather is meant to kick off those discussions. If automakers, suppliers, and OEMs are already working on the safety benefits of these technologies, what changes the game with these new NHTSA requirements? Well, I think it opens the dialogue. Autonomous connect, connectivity and automated vehicles cannot proceed with technology alone. It requires a P3, a public-private par partnership, to make these devices um, be able to communicate properly, be able to be managed properly. And you can't just point to the government and say, you need to create the rules. And you can't just tell industry, each of you can create your own rules. It has to be something that's done in tandem. Um, because if we don't do something in tandem, we're going to end up losing the, the faith and trust of the consumer. And if we do that, the technology is, is doomed for some time. So we really need to do this right to be able to we ensure the customer trust that we're talking in unison between the government and the regulating policies and the insurance industry and the legal industry, along with the automotive and mobility sectors, so that so that we really do this right and create a product that everybody has has confidence in. We already have, you know, for the existing systems on the vehicle for airbags and for seatbelts, we, we already have a number of regulations on the books. And those weren't done in a vacuum either. They were done with communicating with with industry because it has to be, it has to be something that's discussed, negotiated, and always with the customer and safety paramount. As you say, that takes a lot of conversation, and these types of announcement help spur those those types of conversation. I'm curious. 
I think some might see this as another example of government policy following innovation driven by a particular industry. We've seen it this industry time and time again uh, throughout the you know hundred years that that we've been in the business of moving people and things. Why now? Why is NHTSA announcing these requirements now? Is it another example of of policy following innovation? Is there something else going on that's a catalyst for these announcements or for these requirements? Well, I think, yes, of course, it is following um, technology and technology is moving so darn rapidly and, and government agencies move so glacially slow that, you know, there's a mismatch there and there has been for years and that itself needs to be fixed. But I think also when you look at what's happening around the rest of the globe and in particular what's happening in China, Korea and even Japan, they're moving ahead in terms of this, these deployments and in terms of the technology for electrification and for autonomy um, that we, quite frankly, in the U.S. need to keep up with. And, you know, one way to do that is to spur that innovation here, establish the guidelines that are already existing in some of these other countries so that then you can all work in unison towards achieving um, what we see as, you know, the future of mobility. Um, you know, we want to be the leader. We, we should be the leader. We've got all the technology here. We've got the startups here. Um, we just need to get everybody on the same page. It's such an interesting and complex ecosystem, right? When you look at countries like China that are doing a lot of the things that you just described, but also then incentivizing investment in those in those types of technology. So they're creating the alert regulatory environment. They're providing the incentive both on the industry and maybe in some cases on the consumer side. I mean, that's that's fundamentally different than what happens in the United States. And to your point, manufacturers have to figure out how to work not only across these other regions, but also in the United States, these different kinds of, uh, you know, the different states within the United States. How mm-hmm. how do you go about doing that? That's, that's tough. <laughs> it's really tough. And, you know, there's a number of bodies in all the different regions that work to standardize some of these regulations. I mean, we have SAE here in the U.S. We've got ITS America. You've got ITS Global. Um, you've got IEEE in in China. You've got Katark in Japan. You have JAMA. You know in Europe you have Dean, and all of these agencies are working steadfastly in creating some of these common rules and regulations. The key then for the automakers as well, and this is why they have to be part of this discussion, is how are we gonna how are we going to hopefully be able to get those aligned so that we keep the level of complexity of the products as minimalized as possible. Now, of course, there's different driving laws in all these different countries around the world that you have to follow. But if we can get some high level parameters and regulations and standards put in place for these various systems, it will be really helpful. Um, we have NCAP in the U.S., we have Euro NCAP, we have Australia NCAP, we also have the, the Chinese ECE regulation. We have all kinds of regulations today that the automakers have to contend with. Some are very similar and some are different. And I would envision that when we go into the world of connectivity and automation that we will have similar standards. But, you know, first we have to have the country 
in order before we can start, I believe, negotiating well with the others. But we should be aware what the other countries are doing so that, you know, we can we can think about that in creating what we need to do properly for this country. Let's go back to your comment on consumer safety, passenger safety. Certainly something that automakers and suppliers focus on day in and day out. And you couple that with conversations that have been going on around full autonomy and the safety benefits. Frankly, some folks even talk about the elimination of accidents altogether. It is, in fact, one of the vision uh, pillars of one of the biggest OEMs in the world, as we both know. Mm-hmm. The Ride Act, the HALT Acts are going through Congress. Both are sponsored by MAD, who I had on the show a couple of weeks ago, and and they don't care what self-driving driver assist technology. They just see that this technology exists, and they want to make it mandatory on vehicles today for the sole purpose of ending drunken driving. Velodyne announced its renewal of its partnership with MAD along those same lines. Volvo last week announced that they were going to make LiDAR standard in their new XC90. That's a lot of pressure on the government. Um and and or that's a lot of pressure on automakers to to make this stuff this stuff make this stuff uh, mandatory, make it readily available in new vehicles coming off the line. How do you think the industry is responding to these these pressures by outside organizations? Yeah, I, they they've always had pressures by outside organizations. This isn't anything new. But I do think they they are looking at it very holistically because, yes, we all know somebody who has whose lives have been terribly disrupted by a drunk driver. Um, I I think all of us personally have been touched in some way, and every single one of us want to see nobody behind the wheel that has has had too much alcohol. And and too much alcohol for one person can be one drink. Too much for another person can be more. You know how that goes. Um, Then when you think about that, and I understand why people want to mandate that, then what are we going to do for other impairments? You know, you start to go down the slope of can we control for every kind of impairment? And maybe we can someday. Maybe we can tell when somebody's stoned. Maybe we can tell when they're when they've taken too many opioids. I don't know. Um, But at some point, we also have to put the onus on people to own up and do the right thing, um, you know, and, and, you know, not get behind the wheel, be responsible for, you know, I, I'm an advocate of making people be responsible. I have four kids and I never let them get away with anything because I, I wanted to teach them that you are only responsible yourself. There's no excuse and nobody, nobody can get you out of it, but yourself. And if you've done something stupid, you need to own up to it and, and not do that stupid thing again. Um, so I, I do believe some of the onus just belongs on people. We, we, we try to prevent today, and I don't want to go into huge dry, diatribe on this, but, you know, too many things because of litigation circumstances that we control that, that people should basically be responsible for them, themselves. Um, so I, I know that they're listening. I know everybody cares. I know they want to do the right thing. They want to do the right thing with children left in cars, unattended, on hot days, 
you know, they want to be able to do the right thing to evacuate people out of circumstances faster, you know, and, and over the years, they've continued to innovate in ways to make the people more safe. But I, I think if we start looking at alcohol abuse, which then is any kind of substance abuse, um, I think you have to look at it from a big picture and not just a one piece um, situation because, you know, it, it, humans are humans and they're going to do stupid things and they're going to find a way to disable some of these things too if they really, really want to. Um, so I'm not saying I, I, I we shouldn't do it. I would certainly never say that. And I know the industry is, I'm sure, taking it to heart um, and really analyzing what it would mean, looking at what it would mean, especially for, um, for uh, people who are abusing a substance of some kind. Um, and, and maybe it makes sense, instead of just focusing on one evil, you know, we should say, let's develop some artificial intelligence that we can tell when anybody is on any kind of substance and they're really not able to drive, which could be something as simple as codeine three that, you know, new moms get after they deliver a baby. They shouldn't be behind the wheel either, but I can guarantee you some are. Um, so, you know, we, I, I think we have to look at it a little bit deeper and broader and I think that's probably what the industry is doing. Now, eventually, if people aren't driving, this could this could very well become a moot point. But that's going to be several years in the making till we don't have a mixture of human driven and even, you know, vehicles where the human is expected to, to take over at some point. You certainly don't want a person that is under any kind of substance to, to you know, think about putting them behind the wheel. So I know that's a long-winded answer and it's it's not simple. I guess that's the main point I'm trying to make. There's a lot to think about here. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. The most motivated car buyers aren't knocking on your door anymore. They're online, but you don't have to look far. You can find them at eBay Motors. Our platform features over 7 million engaged users. Our buyers are so engaged, they enter over 3 billion search impressions per month and buy a car or truck every three minutes. Today's car buyer has high expectations when they browse online. eBay Motors helps you meet those expectations. Use machine learning with our AI-driven vehicle pages, and you'll automatically optimize your buyer's experience. It's as easy as listing your inventory and watching as the most engaged buyers find you. If you've ever uploaded your automotive inventory to a website, you have more than enough skills to get your cars listed on eBay Motors. It will feel like you're setting up an entirely new car dealership within minutes. Once you list your available inventory, you'll have additional support from the platform, including a single destination page for your entire brand. Want to generate more sales automatically? eBay Motors lets you choose between auction, classified, and fixed-price listing options so the site does the heavy lifting. It even integrates with your existing dealer or vehicle management system. All you have to do is list your inventory. Sit back, relax, watch a movie, and then check back in to see the sales you've made. How do you start? It's as simple as creating an account. Call 866-210-5362 and mention the code AUTONEWS to get 50% off your first two months. Find out why selling cars has never been this easy. That number again, 866-210-5362. I think one of the underlying themes that you touched upon in that in your comments was this notion of consumer acceptance. You know, we've talked about consumer acceptance of these technologies, AV and EV. 
broadly and often in the context of are they interested in the features? Are they willing to pay for the features? You know, as the as the ROI for automakers and suppliers' investment in the R and D and in bringing those technologies to market. But in some cases, acceptance also means using that technology. Uh, I've said on this show before, my vehicle comes with lane assist. I don't enjoy that experience. I turn it off. But that has safety impacts. So how important is this notion of consumer acceptance to this type of technology and active use of these types of technologies? It's incredibly important. I mean, when you think about, you know, you talk about lane departure warning, uh, blind spot detection, rear backup um, assist, forward collision assist, all of these things um, are meant to prevent, you know, accidents and or, you know, just lack of attention. Um, The problem is, as we all know, um, sometimes they have... uh, false positives and sometimes they're just downright annoying because of the sensitivity. So a lot of people turn these things off. Things that should be keeping them safe, they turn off. I'm with you. I turn off lane departure warning too. And not because I don't turn on my turn signals when I change lanes, but because it is a little too sensitive for my liking. Um, and I don't like the beeping at me or the haptics, either one. I don't I don't like either. Um, but I always keep the other things on. Blind spot, spot warning, I cannot tell you the number of times that it, it really has um, prevented me from maybe cutting somebody off. Um, even though I think I'm a pretty good driver, I sometimes miss it. Um, and I always keep that on. I always keep on rear collision, forward collision. I use my... Um, cruise control. And if I have adaptive cruise control, I use that too. Um, and, and I'm a technology geek. So you give me something, I'm trying it out just to see how it works. But I'll tell you, I go from one brand to another and each one of these things works differently. And it's easy to become confused. Um, it's, it's easy to have trust in a system that when you get into a different system, it doesn't operate the same. And it's easy to, to become distrustful. So we have to be looking at, as an industry, calling these different ADAS systems by a common name, common terminology, terminology, and thinking about, you know, what are those specifications? What are those standards or guidelines that, you know, we can have some consistency amongst the way these things operate? I mean, that's number one. And, and you know, once you lose somebody's trust, you move into this kind of valley of death where, you know, I've talked to a number of people, especially, you know, our elderly population, I shouldn't call them elderly because I fit that mold, but, you know, those people 65 plus that say, I just got this new car, I can't figure out anything works, so I just turned everything off. So, yes, we're great at making this technology, we're great at putting it in cars, but are we great at telling people how to use it and then continually following up with them and saying, how's that working for you? Do you need any help? Um, you know, how can we do a better job in that human side so that, you know, people are using this technology? We're spending good money to put on the vehicle. They're spending good money to buy it and then they're turning it off. And then we're losing the whole benefit of that technology. Same goes for electrification. And then once we move into automation, we really need to be thinking about that dialogue that we're using with the customer so that they can understand the technology, keep it simple. 
and understandable and follow up and 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 make sure they're they're you know make sure you're understanding where they're having difficulties what do you need to fix do over the air updates fix it keep it simple think about how you can put something in the menu that somebody can verbally ask hey why is this doing this and how can i change it you know this kind of technology is is going to go you know light years think about your phone and really some of the things you you look at and and how easy it is to reconfigure cars should be the same way absolutely absolutely the other thing that's interesting to me relative to future mobility and these new technologies is this notion of social equity when it comes to transportation I was watching the golf tournament this weekend that as you know was hosted at the detroit golf club and the sponsor of that uh quicken loans lots of exposure promotion of the program they're doing to bring more internet connectivity to the people of detroit mm -hmm. it seems the social equity more access to transportation is very similar to that giving people transportation who might not have access to it the ability to get to where they need to go for whatever life demands. How important is this notion of social equity in your mind to transportation? It's vital. It's vital to our workforce. It's vital to our talent in the country because mobility provides ladders of opportunity for education, for healthcare, and for jobs. And without that mobility, you really struggle to, to be able to attend school in some cases, to be able to go and get the proper medication or the health care to keep your body in shape so that your brain can work properly. And quite frankly, with the cost of a new vehicle today, we are out, you know, a new vehicle is out of reach of a vast majority of the American population. And this this is just not sustainable. So how can we how can we think differently as an industry about the democratization of mobility to be able to provide equal access? Now, it doesn't mean everybody needs their own car. No, it doesn't mean that at all. But we need to be thinking about better public transit, better ride sharing, um, better options that allow people to use multiple modes of transit and connect easily with some sort of common payment system and or working with employers to be able to think about how they can subsidize that as part of an employment package. You know, many employers today pay for parking, pay for this, pay for that. Well, heck, what if you could just pay for first mile, last mile transit for somebody to be able to get on a bus and make it into work? Um, you know, we have big issues with turnover. We have people that aren't staying on, you know, jobs for a long time. It's very expensive. Think about how that could go into some sort of package. And, you know, it, it, you can see it in schools. You can see it in people's health. Without those who are in mobility deserts really have very little opportunity to move out of those mobility deserts because they can't get to the right forms of education. Um, and it's very difficult to stay employed um, on a regular basis. Well, I, I, from a personal side of, of what we're talking about here, I have, you know, my mother-in-law, she lives 40 minutes from here, a widow, uh, can't drive, um, doesn't have a way to get to her doctor's appointments. If something should happen at the house, it's my wife and I who are her caretakers. And mm -hmm. this access or 
limited access to mobility options for her are not only, to your point, um, uh, not very beneficial to the services that are available to her, but it also is is creates sometimes disruption, unplanned things in our household as well. And and it seems the social equity piece of transportation is not only those that are less fortunate, but there's also a benefit for those of us that care for those folks in our lives that who might not be as fortunate <laughs> as we are. Yeah, undoubtedly. It just is, uh, you know, a couple of, of facts. You know, most people 65 and over are going to outlive their driver's license by 10 years. And we know that one of the worst things for a senior citizen who wants to age in place, most of them want to age in place as well. Um, the worst thing is for them to become isolated and lonely because that creates both physical and mental uh, concerns that then, you know, are have to be dealt with as well. So the more we can keep people out and about, the more we can let them maintain their daily lives, their shopping, meeting friends for coffee, talking about things, the better, you know, we all are. So, you know, it's not just uh, people in underserved communities, it's the elderly, it's persons with disabilities that have never had the opportunity to drive or you know, have lost it recently because of cognitive and or physical um, ailments. The future of mobility and all these wonderful connections and connectivity and new technologies, it certainly is promising for those of us that are in the industry and, and citizens in the United States and frankly around the world. Let's close a little bit with what's going on next month. It's, uh, you know, your the, the annual car management briefing seminars are back. It's a bit of a hybrid going back to live and having a virtual component as well. Um, how's the team holding up? I'm sure it's exciting and exhausting at the same time. It's great. I, I'm going to, yes, it's exhausting. And, you know, it's our normal, it feels like a normal MBS again. You know, even though we're hybrid, um, you know, just that enthusiasm, what people are saying, hey, I can't wait. This is my first conference in 18 months. You know, I want to talk to other people. And of course, this year it's a hybrid. So those of us, you know, working on putting together the event itself, it's double. You know, not only do you have to get things ready up in Traverse City, but you got to make sure it's ready on the virtual platform as well. So yes, it's double trouble. Um, you know, still money is tight. So getting those exhibitors and sponsors, you know, we're working night and day to, to try to get those on the on site and, and help defray some of the costs. Um, speakers are lined up. Most of them, about 70% of them are going to be there in person. The others will have on the screen. Um, fortunately, there is no panel that it's just the moderator and the screens. So uh, it, it's we've got a number of people coming there. We're going to be talking about a lot of these things we just talked about. What about connectivity and automated and the rulemaking? What about social equity? How about using highly automated vehicles to, you know, help provide those ladders of opportunity? And where does public policy and urban planning fit into this whole scenario? Um, propulsion, a lot on EVs a whole bunch on trade policy, USMCA, um, 
and looking at, you know, our supply chain risks and purchasing and, and what we need to think about differently in terms of risk mitigation. So take a look at the website, you know, look, see all the sessions. We are fully booked now already at the resort, but we have other um, venues reserved for people who still want to make a way up and, and stay up there with us. But anybody who's been up north this year knows that it is jam-packed up here. I imagine I have been guilty of a late registration in my history attending MBS and your team has always been wonderful in trying to figure out, uh, although I do pack a tent every once in a while, just in case nothing works out uh, and, and stay over there in that state park right across the street from the yep. lake. Carla, thank you for spending some time with me today talking about some very newsworthy and headline topics when it comes to vehicle automation. Congratulations to you and your team with what's ahead with MBS. I'm sure everybody's excited. I know we at Automotive News are. Folks that I've talked with are excited to get back together up north at this wonderful time of year. So congratulations to you and your team. I'm sure it's going to be an amazing conference as always. Thank you very much, Steve. Pleasure talking with you today. That's Daily Drive for Thursday, July 8th. For breaking news, go to autonews.com. And to catch up on all of our episodes of Daily Drive, go to autonews.com forward slash Daily Drive. Thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow.